It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport in association with LACA. Bicycle insurance powered by the community. Welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport, the home of cycling. I am your host, Graham Wilgos, and I'm very pleased to say the main man is back from the Tour de France, back in the studio this week, Sir Bradley Wiggins. Brad, What's welcome up? back. All right, how are you doing? Good. I'm good, yeah, good to be back, isn't it? We've been a while now. It is, it's good to be well, back. Well, yeah, I mean, we obviously we did an on-site podcast last week, but back back in London. We did, so. back back in your what's become your natural environment of the studio. Um, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw to you here, rather than introducing our other guests this week, because I know just how important the first of the two men who are joining us today is yeah. uh, to you and, and in terms of your career, the bearing he's had on it. Well, but, yeah, I mean, uh, so obviously as a kid, I got into cycling, I grew up, my first poster on my wall was uh, the back page of Cycling Weekly in 1993. I watched the, the Paris-Roubaix and this guy in a British champs jersey with an earring. And I put it on my wall. Didn't really know who it was at the time, but soon learned after that that it was a man called Sean Yates. Um, of course, then from onwards, my teenage years were always spent at a time when we only had two... Well, we obviously, we had Robert Miller, but he was towards the end of his career. We had two British cyclists, Chris Boardman and Sean Yates, who were the peloton. Now we're blessed with so many... Um, and then in 1995, I won the Juvenile Points Race Championships on the track. And I went to the British Cycling Dinner, and Sean gave me my trophy at 15. And I never imagined then, the best part of 17 years on, that he'd guide me to win the Tour de France and ride up the Champs-Élysées together. So it's a pleasure to have Sean here and his son, Jess, who we're proud to say was a Team Wiggins rider last year. So good to have them both in the studio today. Sean, welcome. How have you been? Yeah, fine. Thanks. Thanks for having me on board. Yeah, podcast is new for me. Um, yeah, obviously Bradley introduced me. What can I say? You know, it's been a long, long trip, um, a long well, where journey. Where did you come from today then? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where did you come from? Sorry. <laughs> come from sure. Spain. Um, you know, but um, we had some fantastic times with, with Bradley and yeah, I kind of honoured and a bit, um, you know, embarrassed really that he talks about me in, in a way he does. Well, we'll save the embarrassment, hopefully. We, we'll come on to, because I know we've got a lot to talk about with your career and the, and the bearing that you've had on Brad's. Um, but you've, who else have you brought along with you? My son, Jesse, who's 22. Yeah, he's riding his bike. He's a bit sick at the moment. But yeah, he's obviously a big fan of Bradley, both of Bradley last year, his team. And yeah, you know, he's um, kind of trying to follow my footsteps and I'm trying to guide him as best I can. It's not easy. It's not easy out there, you know, for youngsters. Um, it's only getting harder, so it can't be easy doing seven, eight hours a day. No, <laughs> coached by Sean. <laughs> Ten hours today, please, Jess. <laughs> Nine o'clock at night, that. Dad. I can't do that. <laughs> you don't talk northern, but I'm just saying. Um, what Jesse? do you think, Jess? Yeah, he's, I think he's a good coach. The main thing I find about the coach is someone that understands you as a person. That's the main thing, really. And then you just go out and ride hard. Do you, do you remember Sean racing and your dad racing when he was... Because obviously he's retired in 95. How old you, would you have been then? Well, I was born in 96. So. Well, there you go. I'm not, I didn't get a GC in maths, but I can work that out that you didn't see him race. No, the most times um, 
when uh, he'd go away and stuff is when he's going for away on um, when he was managing DS, like CSC yeah. and stuff I remember sometimes back in Sussex sometimes you'd have an early flight and uh, he'd come into my room Changing in the mornings no, I, was, I don't know I was maybe around 10 he would come into my mornings and he'd lie in bed with me for about an hour before he'd left and I kind of remember that, and I probably haven't even told him until now, to be honest. But yeah, I remember things like that, staying up sometimes until he gets home. Jesse, you were also a team, as, as Brad's mentioned there, as your dad's mentioned there, you're also a team Wiggins rider. So Brad was effectively your boss as well. Yeah, last year, yeah. What's, what's Brad like as a boss? Pretty laid back. Yeah, very he's, laid back. He's very, he's down to worth guy. It's quite special being here, to be honest. Thanks yeah. for having me. I, think, um, I don't get involved. I don't get involved because these guys, yeah. they, they, should, they motivate themselves. You know, you just give them the tools and the platform to do it. They don't need pressure. They shouldn't have pressure. They should motivate themselves because they want to do it. And I think that's what we try and provide in Team Wigan. So. All right. Well, look, we're recording shortly after the finish of Stage 9 of, uh, of the Tour de France, 200 kilometres from Saint-Étienne to Brioude, uh, won by Daryl Impey, uh, the Mitchell's and Scott rider, who got the better of Tige Benoot in a two-up sprint at the end there. Um, Lotu Sudal looking for their second win in as many days, but it was always going to be Impey, we felt, didn't we, boys, by the time they went toe-to-toe. Um, here's how Rob Hatch called it for us. It's been three long years for Mitchell's and Scott, but they have it. Impey has it. South Africa has its stage win. Darren Impey, for the first time in his career, is a Tour de France stage winner. Tears, emotion, delight and relief. Now well into his 30s for Darren Impey. What do we make of today's stage, chaps? Because we've all we've all seen it together. We've all seen the last um, hundred kilometres or so together. It's just a classic mid Tour de France stage, really, a transition stage, really, isn't it? And and they're the hardest stages, aren't they, Sean? They're just the terrain. You don't really get a view of it on the TV, but it, it's just up, down all day. And obviously the break got ten, twelve minutes. So there was no danger in there, but it's always always a chance for guys that are way out on GC to get a stage win, really, and there's like two races going on, but they are the toughest stages, aren't they, Sean? Yeah, I mean, like you say, it's, it's, a, it's a section of the race where there are time gaps, you know, quite large time gaps, so it means that if the right combination goes up the road, um, they let them go. Of the GC riders, know it's a waiting game, and they're, they're waiting for the, for the mountains, so, you know, and the sprinters aren't going aren't gonna to do anything today, Meanwhile, the tour is running on. You know, a few teams have won stages. The amount of stages up for grabs are diminishing day by day, literally. So, you know, they have to try the luck. Uh, and, and today was the first kind of day when a big break went away and a bunch sat up and, and just let them. Well, we saw Thomas de Gant's epic breakaway yesterday, but it's not been, in terms of a sort of classic tour, it's not been a traditional Tour de France so far, has it, Brad? No, I mean, I was saying that before we came on air. Just it, it, I can't remember a tour like this where... We didn't have those first week of sprint stages, really. It's been, I actually think it's been better racing, better to watch. I find it better with a team time trial and you know, an early summit finish in the race rather than things like last year where they tried the grid system at the start of the race. You know, it's just, I mean, can you remember a tour like this, Sean? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're always trying to change things, trying to make the tour more attractive, obviously, for the viewers so that, yeah, the, the, the viewing figures are up and, and everyone's happy and, and the show continues. I think the other year we had the stage finishing um, up the Mur de Huy, yeah, which created time gaps. Mur so, de Bretagne as well. Yeah, Mur de Bretagne. They're yeah. trying to mix it up and, and give everyone a chance, you know, year on year and, and change things around. I think it gives everyone a chance. Like I said, there are stages for sprinters, there are stages for the um, the breakaways, like yesterday, like today. 
But for the GC teams, it's a real waiting game until that. And when you look at the rest of the course until that final week. So it's two mm. weeks basically of just keeping yourself, keeping powder dry, and you know staying safe. But obviously, there's only well, from what I'm looking at now, one team that really know what they're doing and I can safely say that if they get things right. They got really, really, you know, ninety nine point nine percent chance of winning. And which team might that be? Well, in um, you know, obviously, uh, uh, JB's Golden Boys, formerly formerly Sky, yeah. and obviously they know how to do it because they've done it many times before. And yeah, you know, I think a lot of teams are intimidated. And when I'm looking at the way they're riding the other teams, the opposition, you know, you know, all things being equal, obviously G defending champion, he has a fantastic chance of repeating that. So you know. By disasters, I think other teams are just kind of psyched out. Is G the man now? We think after after what we've seen this week on La Planche de Belfi with Thomas taking nine seconds out of Egan Bernal. So this is the conversation that we've uh, that sort of built up just before just before this weekend. Really, is is it going to be Thomas the main man? Is it going to be Egan Bernal? Thomas has really gone out and stamped his authority on it this week, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, I said at the start of the race that's where he differs from me. That's where he's a better rider than me because. I only I, my motivation was based on perfect preparation, and you know if there was a seed of doubt, I kind of fall apart a bit, you know. Whereas G is that's why he's so mentally strong because he he's not had a perfect year, but that won't bother him. He'll still race the race in the same way and take it on, like he rode the other day. He's not thinking, oh, have I got it to ride away from these guys? And by riding like that, he'll either not back up the day after if he goes too deep because he's not got the background and the work done. But I think with his age and his experience, he's rode this tour. He must be, I think he must be about his 10th tour now. Um, I think because of his mental strength and his laid-back character, his focus, the way he approaches things, he's very laid-back. I think, I think he could win a second tour. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's, he's proved it this week. You know, as long as things don't go drastically wrong for him, yeah, I think he's, he's, he's in the position to win it. Sean, you think it's a big shame that he's, he's not looking at any big challenges from elsewhere? You, you, like for example, well, from from a spectator's point of view, you know, if you look at the GC at the moment, um, and even before the race started, you know, the likes of Dumoulin is not there. In my opinion, he's the guy who can really give G or any or any of us a run for their money. For example, Roglic, they wanted to concentrate on the Giro um, for whatever reason. It's not just those individuals, is it? The team, the yes, strength of course, and depth. of course. I mean, there is no team. But like it. ultimately, last year we could have seen that, you know. For the same money, Dumoulin could have almost won the tour. You yeah. know, so you know, at the end of the day, if you can follow the wheel, you follow the wheel. If you mm. can't, you can't. It doesn't matter. You've got the uh, the strongest team in the race, and obviously, I think G is in a perfect position. Like Bradley says, he's so cool. Uh, mentally strong mentally and obviously physically he's shown that over the past and especially last year when he won one thing so for me obviously he didn't have an ideal winter lots of um, commitments and stuff but you know he's got he's a big motor he's a big motor and he hasn't over raced this year for sure uh he's done the training so for me obviously barring disaster which can be for anyone he's not got it in the bag but you know he's certainly on the right track it's very early days in this tour Obviously, we like to talk it up and plunge to Belfi, but in reality, it's a six-kilometre climb, you know, and um, we've got the time trial coming up, you know, in a not-too-distant future. So I would say that he would definitely reinforce his position as a favourite, and I can't see any other riders influencing the result like potentially could have happened last year with Dumoulin riding off or Fumataki or, and then chasing each other, and that kind of, luckily... Um, for for G that kind of neutralised the situation and the right man won at the end of the day but for the same money 
if Dumoulin, you know, or, or Fumi was rooting off a little bit and Dumoulin was, mm. you know, didn't close it down and G was obviously couldn't jump up, then... If anyone is going to challenge them, if any single rider or any team is going to challenge them, who's it going to be? Well, Pino's having to go, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, Alaphilippe, he's just, he's amazing, hasn't he? The last 12 months, the amount of races he's won. But as Sean said, it was only a six kilometre climb. It's quite, we haven't really hit the big mountains yet. We'll see, I mean, Bernal, I mean, he's not far behind, but, you know, has he got to abide team orders? Are they still going for G? I mean, we just don't know at this stage, do we? Um, but the sad thing is, I can't see anyone in that top 10 at the moment that has probably got the balls to take him on. Mm. I think that's the biggest thing. Someone like a Nibali would, but he's a bit off at the moment, isn't he? Lander, a little way off at the moment. A lot of those guys already a week in have lost so much time. You can't imagine them getting it back. And we see the same old story playing out each year. G can ride his bike. And that's where he's best in these sprint stages and early stages. You know, he's just Madison, right? Team Olympic team pursuit champion. You know, he's just puts himself in the position every year that will line him up for the win, really. And that's where he supersedes everybody else, you know. I just can't... The sad thing, I can't see anyone else at this stage barring some big catastrophe happening. These guys probably will all be looking at that going, I can get on the podium here. I can't imagine any of them thinking, I'm going to try and win the Tour. Mm. Jesse, if you had to pick one man, who do you think would, would challenge Team Ineos? Like I say, Pino, but I'm not confident in his time trial ability. We, we sort of see it every year, don't we, that ASO want to design a course that is going to suit the French riders. So yeah. whether, whether it's going to be Bardet, whether it's going to be Pino. Mm. We saw Pino and Alaphilippe giving it a go with 11 kilometres left yesterday, going off the front. So you, you've got a Frenchman in, in yellow for Bastille Day. Um, L'Equipe have said it's, it's this year or never for Bardet yeah. and Pino. Um, it's it, of the two. It's P, it's Pino, isn't it? Bardet's not been. He's, yeah, he's not had the form this year. Just Pino. I'm not sure with him. I'm not sure with the team he's got around him in the in the car. Really, they're so inexperienced in winning. I mean, I've been in that team. Obviously, they've moved on quite a bit since then. In terms Which of F- FDJ, we're talking yeah, about, yeah, Madio yeah. at the helm. You know, um, they've never ran a Grand Tour either. You know, the Volta, Dura, or Tour. Uh, when you look at the amount of Grand Tours that Inua um, Sky won, and and the DS behind the wheel, how many tours he's won you know, calling the shots and making the right decisions time and time again, you know, that can't, you can't kind of buy that, that experience. And I think G in particular, every rendezvous he's ever had, whether it be on the track or the classics, he's Nothing always... Nothing phases him. No, he's always no. hit, and he's always hit his goals. Nothing so, phases him. And G will want to win. G's mm, not there yeah. to ride for second or third place. He wants to win. So another headline for you this week, Richard Carapaz, the Giro d'Italia winner. We talked about this a little bit, Brad, during yeah. the Giro whether or not Carapaz would sign for, for Team Ineos. Mm. Now it seems, so again, this is another another story coming out of Le Keep. now it seems like it will be officially announced in August, yeah. when they're able to, that Carapaz will be a Team Ineos rider. Where does he fit in when you've got Froome coming back from injury, you've got G, Bernal, then you add another another man who has shown he is well capable of doing it in the Grand Tours. Yeah, Where does he fit in? Well, he fits in where everyone else fits in. I mean, I just... You either become a leader on your day and take your opportunity, or you're part of that train that's sitting at 450 watts, bringing that group from 10 down to 6, and 7 of them are Ineos. I mean, you know, the thing is, I said it during the Giro coverage, aside from anything, you know, he's won the Giro, so they'll be paying him heavily. <laughs> and why wouldn't you want to go to Ineos and benefit from the, the technology and the finance and the backing they've got? Why wouldn't you? You know, it's not the rider's fault. It doesn't lend itself to the longevity of the sport and how competitive it's going to be because it's just get they're getting stronger and stronger and stronger, aren't they? And they've got more money to spend than everyone else. It's not just about the money. They have got the setup. You need to have that setup and the technology and all the infrastructure. You need money to do that, which they've got. They've got the brains, but you need the money to then make it happen. 
And it's like, well, why wouldn't you want to go there as a rider and be paid a lot of money and ride with other great riders as well and benefit mm. from that? It's, it seems like we've got a couple of uh, a couple of riders leaving Movistar then. Um, yeah, this this it, season, it so, so, yeah. it's like Landers on his way out. Uh, Sean, what do you make of this? Well, I think. Um, I mean, who knows exactly what um, Dave B is thinking. Maybe he wants to win all three Grand Tours. He's always wanted to do that, hasn't he? Uh, in one year. That's always and been a goal. totally dominate, you know. Mm. And obviously they've got the guy who won the Giro now. They've got guys who won the Tour. Mm. They've got the guys who won the Volta, you know. And there is, you know, there's certainly enough races to go around. Obviously the Tour is the big one and grabs, you know, the majority of the headlines. So, you know, would they sacrifice going to the Tour with a slightly weaker team because they want to win all three, three Grand Tours or not? I mean, I don't really know, um, but certainly they have the capacity to... But they'll double up, won't they? Certainly give it, yeah. give it a go, yeah. a go and uh, designate the roles for the right people at the right time. And it certainly will be a challenge. But, um, you know, from a sporting side of things... In my opinion, it's it's taking the edge off off, off from the spectator. Well, already we're sitting here thinking who's going to challenge, and Froome not even there. You know, one more headline for you this week, chaps. Um, so some of the some of the bigger riders actually in the in the peloton have have been complaining about television motorbikes and how they negatively affect the race. Right. So we've had Jacob Fulsang, uh, Dan Fuglesang. Martin, yeah, yeah, both yeah. both saying that they're too close effectively to the peloton. Fulsang saying that they're uh, they're giving the the riders who break away the advantage, and and therefore that's not fair. Um, Brad, obviously you've been on a bike among the peloton mm. this this past week for Eurosport yeah. for us. This is all your fault, isn't it? No, 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 no. Because we shoot past the peloton. But one, but they've always been a part of cycling. You know, you have to go back and watch Sunday in Hell, and there's a reason that you can see Freddie Martin's face in the camera because the motorbikes are there. The Vlamics by behind a whole load of motorbikes of the first sector. They're part and parcel of the racing. Yes, the cyclists are what it's all about, but without the television cameras, you won't have the viewership, you won't have the money. So we've got to coexist. You know, in, same, in the same way, the argument of the spectators on the climb when they knock the Astana guy off, and a lot of riders are a bit uh, hypocritical because. It's great when you're benefiting from it. You're not going to complain, you know. And I think it's when you're on the back end of it and the peloton's lined out and you're like... So they're part and parcel of the racing. The viewers are what it's about, really, at the end of the day. It's about people watching cycling, otherwise you're going to have no money. The reason you've got a job and the money you're getting paid is because we have a sport that is on on TV all the time now. So we've all benefited from the motorbikes at one point or another. So it's get to the front and make the most of it. <laughs> Fuglesang was saying that they should be up to 50 metres away, Sean. I mean, that's, that's a crazy distance. Well, I, 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 you know, I don't know exactly. Um, I saw that, that figure out there. I don't know what they're, you know, it's obviously difficult to, to measure it exactly. As Brad said, they've been part and parcel of, of the bike game for, for, for years. Um, and it swings around about it has to, you know, one moment, one moment yourself benefiting, the next is another person. Um, it's well documented now that obviously having lead cars and motorbikes and commissaires cars and what have you, 50 metres in front even, is going to provide advantages. I think we saw that yesterday with Thomas de Ghent, that Alaphilippe and Pino, they couldn't close the gap on the downhill where they're motoring, where obviously the benefit is much greater. Yeah. Um, when it came to the climb, obviously they were gaining hand over foot. I saw Mollema was complaining about the fact that um, possibly De Ghent was taking the, his victory might have been taken away because of the cars, but the cars were benefiting De Ghent, not 
Pinot and and yeah, but if you want to start doing Philippe, that, yeah, then, I mean, then it's getting all a bit petty. Benefit from the cars when they crash, exactly. and they pretend to have a mechanical trouble to get back to the peloton. Mm. So you I know, think it's just, a bit what, of sour grapes. What do you want to do? You know? uh, and 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 obviously Astana, it didn't work out yesterday for them. I don't really know what their plan was. It all backfired. Maybe they looked a bit stupid, or they felt a little bit stupid. So you, you know, think they're looking to lay the blame elsewhere? Well, yeah. I don't know. It's like Different. diving in football, isn't it? It's the yeah, same thing. Yeah. You know, what, at what point is it cheating to gain a penalty? You know, I think you it's know, just... It's, it's a fine part. line, and obviously yeah. you've got your guys who complain, guys who don't, next week someone else. You know, obviously when it becomes dangerous, then there is another point, yeah. and I think that's Dan Martin, and there are a lot of bikes around, but as Brandon says, you know, it's a fine line between the sport being out there for the public and, and it not... So they have to coexist, like yeah. Bradley said. And in know? the tour, so when you get to the time trial stages, when you're off at the end with the, the, the yellow jersey and that, you get two gendarme motorbikes up ahead because they actually keep the crowds back so you can ride. And you could say there's a benefit in that because you've actually got two police motorbikes. Mm. And sometimes they're not always looking in the mirrors because they're trying to protect your safety. So you'll actually get up behind them and you'll get more of a benefit. So everyone benefits from it at some point. And it, a lot of the time, it's where you are in the race. So if you're in the back end as GC riders, you get two motorbikes when you maybe get more of a draft. If you're early starters, it means you're down GC, so you don't get as much benefit, so you lose more time. So if you're at the front of the race and you're in the office and you've taken up the responsibility to ride in and you're going down descents, motorbikes sometimes, you know, they, they can't get down the descent as quick as, as, the, as, as the cyclists. You run up on them. It's impossible to... They're looking in mirrors. They've got a guy on the back doing, you know, he's saying slow down. I can't see the, you know, it's just, there's so much going on. It's, and it's six hours. How are they going to keep 50 metres for six hours? Mm. You've been back on the bike, as, as we've said, mm. among the peloton this week. Uh, sum it up for us. How's it been? Because we've, yeah. we've loved watching it on TV. Brilliant. Uh, License to take the piss for me. Um, I got to see a lot of guys that I hadn't seen for many years, a lot of DSs. And it's just, just seeing the race for what it is now where i'm at in my life it's quite it's about the viewer you know i've kind of got that around my head now and it's things that come second nature to me that maybe viewers watching don't know that i can see at the back yeah i'm mean, stage one people saying no, i never knew that happened so dan martin stopped for a 55k to go with his team and i said on the radio this is the last opportunity now for the gc guys to have a because it's only going to get faster and faster and faster and you you risk not getting back on and and things like that that are second nature from racing for 20 years, mm. but people that have just come, they won't know that. Or going through the feed, and you know, Christian Nice always used to take my feed bag as well as his because you risk crashing with a you know a string bag or whatever. So it just I'm there to tell the people what's happening. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, I'm not going to be all newsreadery. You know, I'm going to have a laugh of it as well. You know, it's 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 just good fun. You know, Jesse, that's come across I think on screen as a as a fan. You enjoyed it. Yeah, I like the um, Instagram videos that Brad does on the moto. Talk to Max in Bouet. Mm. Just a little, a little bit of extra here and there. I love you. <laughs> you rule. What did he say to you afterwards? Did Same. He... We had a running joke when he was when I was racing with him. He always used to say, "I love you, Brad." You know, so that was it. Um, nothing really I didn't see him after we got in uh, trouble for talking not allowed to talk to the riders uh, well that's it for the end of part one join us for more from the Bradley Wiggins show after this viewers can watch every minute of the 2019 Tour de France with all 21 stages broadcast live from kilometre zero anytime anywhere only on Eurosport and Eurosport Player for the first time ever, 2012 Tour de France winner Sir Bradley Wiggins will feature as an in-race motorbike reporter delivering unrivaled insight from the peloton, bringing fans closer to the action than ever before. Don't miss a moment of the 106th Tour de France live on Eurosport and Eurosport Player. Try it for yourself on the app or at eurosport.co.uk.
Now, it's been a huge weekend of sport, nowhere more so than in Udine, Italy, where Annemiek van Vluten has won the Giro Rosa. Going into Sunday's Stage 10, the Mitchelton Scott rider had a lead of almost four minutes, meaning she could afford to finish comfortably in the bunch. CCC Liv's Mariana Voss won the final stage sprint, her fourth win of the Tour, uh, on the cobble climb to the finish. Van Vluten is joined on the podium by her compatriot Anna van der Breggen at 3.45 and teammate Amanda Spratt at 6.55. Van Vluten could almost have stopped for a chat with the Bradley Wiggins show. As it was, I caught up with Annemiek shortly after she crossed the line and began by asking her how she was feeling after successfully defending her title. Uh, happy and um, eager to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, quite right too. We said the last time we spoke on the Bradley Wiggins show, we said that you were the queen of late drama because you're so used to leaving it late in races. But for the Giro, um, for the Giro Rosa, you've uh, you sort of won it quite comfortably in the end. You went early. Yeah. That um, makes it uh, also nicer actually to enjoy it and not waking up too nervous every day. Uh, after I took uh, yeah, some time in uh, stage five and six after the time trial and in the Lago di Cancano uh, stage. So yeah, that uh, made it uh, a bit less stressful. Sure. Um, and I think it's been what we've seen over the past 10 stages has been some some real out of the saddle attacking, thrilling racing from the from the from the peloton. How has it been from from your point of view uh, in amongst it all or, or for a lot of the time out in front of it all? Yeah, I think they, they put out some really nice courses with really nice finishes also. Like sometimes the, the finishes uh, Marianne Vos won uh, like with, uh, were very special and a bit technical. It makes it also a bit more exciting, I think. Uh, and also, yeah, the Indigo Rosa, they're great with uh, finding really hard courses, also hard days like with yesterday with... Uh, uh, the finish uphill was like epic, epic steep. Um, and uh, yeah, they also had planned to, the Gavia, but even without the Gavia, it was still a really hard and exciting uh, course. Never, uh, never a dull moment uh, in this Giro. And uh, yeah, I think that, uh, that makes it also why I really like uh, to target Giro for 10 days. It's like really our hardest, hardest stages on the calendar. And yeah, it takes a lot of preparation to win it. Sure. Annemiek, I want to ask you about your attack on the Torre de Faili uh, climb, where you went for one minute and 20 seconds, I think, attacking out of the saddle. Uh, tell, yeah. us, tell us about that. Was it planned? Did you go on feel? Yeah, with the Gavia Steve out, I knew that uh, that climb is a bit shorter. It was 11k. Um, and I wanted just to gain as much as time as possible because I knew that also the time trial was only 12 kilometers, so not possible to take there so much time. Um, so yeah, I felt like it's a great opportunity. I felt good. Um, also I saved my legs for the first five days, first four uh, days. And actually I couldn't wait to finally, um, yeah, uh, attack. And that's why I also went out early. Um, I think to gain as much as time as possible, um, which I did. And tell me, enemy, did it make a big difference to you and to the other riders in the peloton knowing that every single stage was televised? Yeah, it was unfortunately not live televised. Um, I would have loved uh, that. I think that's the most, uh, the first important step uh, to improve in Misaken is that we need live TV coverage or at least live TV streaming. Um, so that's a bit sad that you know that yeah, people can't follow the epic battle live. And uh, I think people ask for that. So that uh, that makes me also really proud that people get annoyed that it's not live on live on television. So uh, I really hope for next year's uh, 
editions and actually all the women's race and that we, uh, we get way more live uh, TV coverage. I think that's the first uh, step to improve um, our sport and uh, to, um, to step up and um, also make it more interesting for sponsors. So, um, yeah. I really uh, hope for that, but it yeah it was this nice that uh, people could watch it afterwards, the the fighting and uh, there was uh, they they could enjoy it only a bit later. It has, as you say, been epic at times. Um, Anamik, what are you going to do now? Um, I hope the answer is is celebrate. Yeah, we uh, we all stay here in Udine uh, with my team all together. Uh, we will celebrate with a nice dinner and for sure some wine, gelato, uh, pizza, some some style kind of uh, food and drinks I didn't have uh, the last month. So um, yeah, I look forward to that to uh, to celebrate it not only with the riders but with the whole staff because they everyone like worked so hard here uh, all together and then it's really nice to uh, to celebrate and I think also that makes it more beautiful for me to win uh, a stage race because you really do it together you can't win it by yourself and it takes also more than only the riders but also the staff so um, yeah that uh, gives me really goosebumps then hmm. to take this jersey home and what next for you in uh, in terms of racing what comes next um, I will race San Sebastian and but my main goal uh, for this year is uh, the World Championships in Yorkshire to f- defend my world title on the time trial uh, and I think also I have a, uh, maybe a good chance on the, on the road race too although it's a bit more a classic race not as hard uh, with climbing unfortunately as last year in the Innsbruck but um, I think still um, together with uh, the Dutch team we are, we are really strong and we have a good chance to win again so um, yeah for sure I would like to be uh, one of uh, one of them that will take the, the rainbow jersey for the road but um, yeah at least um, I focus on what I have in control and that's like to be optimal prepared and in optimal shape in the world championships all right well we look forward to seeing you there Anamik congratulations again I know you've got 101 demands on your time as winner of this year's Giro Rosa um, so I'll say congratulations and uh, enjoy your celebrations this evening I will. Thank you. Listeners, it's time to tell you a bit more about our sponsor, Lacquer. Lacquer is a smarter way of insuring your bike and your gear. It's a community of cyclists joining together to save each other money. Lacquer covers all the basics like theft and accidental loss and damage, both at home and abroad. It will also cover you in sportives and competition races, so long as you're not riding in the pro peloton. How does Lacquer work, you ask? Well, instead of charging you a fixed premium, with Lacquer you only pay a small share of the community's claims cost and your share is proportionate to how much you insure. Lacquer locks in a maximum price cap to make sure there are no nasty surprises, even in months with lots of claims amongst the community. And when there are no claims that month, you could even pay nothing at all. Rest assured, claims are accepted fast, usually within 24 hours. On average, Lacquer's members have saved 61% on bike insurance, so why don't you investigate the benefits for yourself? Find out more at lacquer.co.uk and enter the promo code WIGGINS to get £10 off. That's laka.co.uk and the promo code W-I-G-G-I-N-S. Uh, welcome back to the Bradley Wiggins Show. Brad, you introduced him at the top. Mm. Uh, Sean Yates is with us. Uh, you've bought in, I'm very happy to say, a few of Sean's jerseys because you've got, you've got most of his career in mm. jerseys, I think it's fair to say, isn't it? How do you want to do this? Do you want to pick one or do you want to, do you want to pick, a, well, pick um, a moment? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few, but um, these are all specifically from the tour. But I like the one where the day Sean took yellow because I, I didn't go to school that day because it was the day after they came out of Britain and it was 270k, Sherbog to Wren, um, and Sean got into a break towards the end of the race when the race was flat out none of them had helmets on which is really cool you know 
like PC Brigade, you know, Brad Wiggins says never went. No, it's not that. It's just how iconic it was back so then. So it's 25 years ago. Yeah, 25 here. years so ago. 8th of July 1994. And there was Abdu Japrov, Bortolami, all these guys in the break, you know, and it just, it went on force. It went on power. There was nothing lucky about it. Um, at the time, Flavio Vanzella had the yellow jersey after Britain. Museo was lined up. MG were kind of dominating the first week of the race and Sean got into the break and it was, you know, he needed 39 seconds, if memory serves me. Um, and... Um, when he crossed the line, it was like 46 when they came. As Verado won the sprint in the bunch, and um, Duffield was saying on Eurosport that he thinks Sean's took, yeah, Sean's took surely, but they hadn't realised that Bortolami had jumped away in the end, and he was close. So he, I think in the end, you got it by one second. Yes, because there were 20 second bonuses, you yeah. know, and, and those days we didn't have radios. The DS never came up to me and said, You mustn't let Bortolami get a gap because he's only 21 seconds behind you on GC or wherever, you know, so. It could have ended up in a nice surprise because, as Brad said, we were concentrating on the time gap to the bunch, which we thought was you know, the main obstacle in getting that jersey. But um, luckily, it rolled in my favour. Um, obviously, we chased. We chased Bortel Army because I had the most gain. I was the best place in GC, so it wasn't like we were going to let him ride up the road. And obviously, Abidjabra, Bontempi were kind of waiting a little bit more for the sprint, so it wasn't 100% cohesion in that chase group. But, yeah, as I said, luckily... When we really accelerated in the final, we and he celebrated a little bit, so he slowed up, and that that made all the difference. Yeah, I just I remember the thing I remember most on the Channel Four coverage that night was how emotional Paul Sherwin was in doing the interview. You know, he obviously died this year, Paul, um, because he'd been the press officer for Motorola before that, and obviously raced with Sean. And it was the emotion in Paul's voice trying to be a broadcaster, saying, "Sean, you've done it, man." <laughs> You've got the yellow. How do you feel, man? And Sean went, unbelievable, unbelievable. <laughs> it ain't over till the fact no, that then he sings, Then Paul says, Sean, after such a long career, because Sean won't give him much back, and he goes... Yeah, it just shows you. Ain't over to the fat lady sings. <laughs> and, then, mean, and then someone came in, Dago to Lawrence and shouts in the background from the peloton, did you win, man? And he went, yellow! <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Great memories. And also, yeah. I live with Paul in, in north of France in my third year, fourth year pro. So we were quite close. And it was, you know, just fate, really, that he, um, he started working as a press man. For, for Motorola when I was riding. It's out of the blue, really. So, yeah, it was... Um... Well, I just remember how happy the nation were cycling wasn't like it is now and popular and we didn't have raffa and stores and cafes and all this sort of stuff and it was very i'm gonna say incestuous that people weren't each other but it was it was it was a close-knit sport it's a close community and sean was very much part of that from his time trialing background and i don't everyone because he'd ridden so much in the service of other people it was the reward for him i think everyone just realized just it was Sean's day that day and no one was going to take it away from him and to get it by one second and then lose it the day after you all tell the story how he lost it the day after but you got held back in a sprint by Rolf Sorensen but it's bit, you were only in that position Sean because you knew you had a job to do so you lost time in the prologue you didn't it wasn't no like... I, I didn't know I didn't lose, I lost time in the prologue yeah but not well, everyone not, did to Chris didn't they yeah he, he was flying we, we almost won we lost a team time drive six seconds to MG you know which was very close it was so, like 65k though wasn't it yeah I was right up there on GC, and as Brad said, the break went away on strength. I was feeling really good. I moved up to it, and we were hammering, hammering the tongs. I mean, back in the day, as I said, no radios. There was not much, you know, kind of communication or plans. It's like, if you feel good, have a dig. If not, you know, then tough 
Did you communicate with Frankie in the break? Yeah, well, obviously we were riding as hard as we could because I knew I was best place on GC because of the team time trial, you know, Mm. and there was no MG riders, and that's why Fantella had the jersey, Musea was up there, Mm. you know. So it's Frankie Andre up there in the break with you. Yeah, with me. And also, I mean, he would he actually crashed in the final of the team time trial. Otherwise, he would, he would have been better placed than me because he did a better prologue. So it's just a number of coincidences that meant yeah, I ended up in yellow, um, yeah. which was obviously great for me. Like Brad said, it wasn't a massive sport in the UK, but I did make the front page with The Guardian, I think maybe The Telegraph, so... Not the mail, though. No, it was a big day. It was a big day. 20 years later. Um, no, but the um, what I was interested... Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it that stage and that yellow, and you got fifth in Roubaix that year, that con- Lance convinced you to do another year? Because you were going to retire, weren't I you? I was going to retire, yes. I mean, I did, and then he you convinced me. Years, yeah, you? another two years. So, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I was kind of not the hungriest guy out there, and I talked about retiring, but, yes, like Brad said, I ended up doing another two years, and then Team Foldy, so I might have ended up doing even more if it hadn't. But, um, yeah. You became the third Briton ever to wear the yellow jersey mm. after Tommy Simpson, Chris Borman. Yes. And then you. In the, and you and Borman, of course, in the same tour. Indeed, yes. Do, so, you remember, do you remember what you said to me going down the ramp at the first time trial when I was in yellow? Yeah. Yes, I kind of remember. Um, or at the end. I you think. might be the second guy who wins the time trial. Same in the British tour guy. British guy yeah. in the Tour de France. Win it, but I, you'll be the first to win it in the yellow. Yeah, that's right. Because you won the time trial in the 1988 88, tour. yes, yeah. yes. Um, and uh, you barely went on to win that time trial in the yellow. And so. Sean's is still a record average speed. And it was a monster of a time trial as well. Yeah, It's still a record average speed without try bars, Without try bars, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. What was it, 50k now? Something like that. 49.9, yeah. yes. Um, so, happy days. Brad, you've brought that jersey in as well. It was um, a skin suit, yeah. Yeah. The numbers, yeah. Um, the one that really stands out to me is, is the one with a bit of extra decoration on after after Sean's crash from 1991. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that one. Well, so this one, this obviously people can't see it, but it's still got blood stains all over it. There's f- fantastic pictures on the internet of Sean riding along with blue gaffer tape around his arm because he had a, a hole. Sean will tell the story, but was it a brake lever pierced your I arm? Don't, I don't know. Some pierced my arm and, um, you know, it was all happened so quickly. I don't really know. I never knew how I crashed. Um, but you know, I, I, I kind of got up and then blood started spurting out of my, my arm into the air, you know? And I was like, <laughs> and I put my arm in there and put, held my hand over the hole. And then the doctor came out, I think the doctor Port, and put some gaffer tape around What it. did Phil Anderson say though? Phil Anderson was with us, we were right next to me and we were the first team to have radios and the radio was in his helmet. He had crashed the Motorola, also. wasn't it? So they were, they were the first people to put radios in the peloton. His, his helmet had broken, so it's half hanging off his head, but the radio was still working. He's like, man down, man down. And we actually had a five-star US general in the team car that day because of, I guess, the motor collection, connection, sorry, defence, blah, blah, blah. And he had his bodyguard, and the bodyguard jumped out of the car with, with a gun, you know, like, you know, thinking there's a, been a, What's going he, on an here? assault. The bodyguard had put two and two together, so yes. the car had stopped, he's jumped out. Yeah. Like me, I've been like, shot. It's like, it's like it's out of your arm. <laughs> Can everyone stop getting shot? <laughs> <laughs> and spectators all along the side of the road, and he's just assumed that he's put two yeah, and two together and just, got five. Obviously, it all happened so quickly. Um, Argentine, I think. Did you retire from that race, or did you finish? I, I retired, I couldn't continue because i need to go to hospital yeah, no blood time. left <laughs> and no blood left you know to, so, like a costume to, of a man to sew up the hole um i had been suffering for a week already with a with a smash up leg so i was glad to get back to nice really jesse you must have heard a lot of these stories you must have heard these stories again and again which is your favorite you got one for us he has lots of stories sometimes it's hard to pinpoint one on the spot like that but um i like the winter of 94 
when he was at the tax dodge in Belgium. <laughs> and I trained all winter in a wetsuit. Yeah, that's what he, he always says that. He'd go out and some rising tusking on the training camps. He'd go out and um, say they're doing a six-hour ride and he'd go out and do another two hours. I like this one as well. Days. The world's in Goodwood in 82. How many ride, the rides you did in the week leading up to the World Road Race in 1982? Well, I mean, I proceed in the, the, the road race with a track, I think, finished on the Nationals, week before. Yeah. No, the world. Oh, the world. Yeah, so, you know, I was aiming for the pursuit and I did two months solid of four hours a day interval training. Mm. I came to the Worlds, I was totally cooked. In the Nationals, which is the month before, I was absolutely flying. But um, I was cooked for the, for, for the pursuit. I was so kind of gutted that I went out and did three eight-hour rides that week, plus the road championships. So I ended up doing it a 1,000 miles. Um, and the other one, the other story, one more, because we could talk sit here all day, we ain't got long, but was it the 84 tour, your first tour? Yes. How many crits did you do? So 30. how many days of racing did you in one? 50. 50 days race. I was in a coma, he said to me at the end of it. <laughs> but didn't you sleep in your Capri gear car for most of them? I did sometimes, yes. But um, most of them I spent with Alan Pipe in Belgium because they were in Holland. Um, but I did 50 days of racing in a row after I'd done my first tour as, eight, as an 84 kilo, uh, kilo guy. I still don't know how how I manage it. But is this, is I was this, in the coma that winter. Is this when you're doing you're doing like 500 press ups a day as well? I'm not sure. I still I think I packed up the press ups there. Press ups. Only doing 200 by then. Because Robert Miller dropped me once in the, on a flat section and he weighed about 55 kilos, soaking wet. And I thought these sodding press ups ain't helping me, you know. So that was it. But I I carried the muscle for a number of years. To my latter days, you know, you think how different it is now. We talk about the amount of money the Ineos guys are getting paid, but the reason you did them crits is because they used to pay these cash. Was you how much were yes. you getting? Per I mean, crit? I doubled my year salary by riding the crits. By riding the yeah. crits, yeah, obviously inflation and what have you. But I said after that year, I said never again. Even if you know I doubled my salary, I was just so smashed that winter. But yeah, it's all yeah, all the good learning experience. That might have been the two months of four hours a day intervals. <laughs> yeah, also, I mean, you know, so Jess, what's he like as a coach? And, and, and while I was doing that, I was working three hours a day as a gardener by doing the, as well as doing the four hours, and I was doing my half an hour a day press ups and sit ups. So, yeah, I mean, um, it broke me, yeah, basically. Uh, uh, you remember, oh, sorry, laugh, I keep going. When your dad turned the passenger seat in his car into a bed so you could drive halfway around the country doing races. Yeah, I mean, that was when I was an amateur. My that dad was before went, you had to wear a seatbelt. That was my dad driving, you know, driving. He was the driving force behind my progression through the ranks uh, and to bigger and better races. And he did everything. I had the best possible kit imaginable at the time. And he helped me no end. Um, obviously, my mother as well. So, yeah, it was like... And um, there's a nice round-up to that because I still remember when the tour was in Britain... Uh, Museo didn't he let you go off the front yes. and yet I still remember Sean's dad there with a bottle of red wine <laughs> and Sean it. saying yes. hi to him all you know it was like yeah yeah those are fun days so we've mentioned La Planche de Belfi uh, obviously stage 7 of the 2012 tour the first time Brad wore yellow mm. very important day for, for both of your careers Sean you're obviously DS for Team Sky that day Brad's, you know, you're up the, you're up the front, hanging on to to Cadell Evans. No, we, up, I wasn't hanging on to Cadell Evans. I was holding on to my teammates. I mean, we were talking about it over lunch. I still think Sean masterminded that day. But you, you make these plans in the morning, or Sean had probably made a month in advance. We've been to recon that. You can never imagine it going as perfect as it did, can you, Sean? No, that was. I mean, obviously, we had, you know, we had won races in 2011, won Dolphin A, this, that, and the other. That year, in the you know, we'd won everything up to that point, apart from Catalonia when the rain kick wasn't up to scratch. But um, that was, you know, obviously the tour 
as we all know, is the biggest and best. And it was, for me, kind of, it's in the first paragraph of my book that lead up to it and how we carried out, executed our plan. Yeah. And it was just like, hairs on the back of my neck type of thing, you know, even now. Well, I can still remember the instructions over the radio when he told Edvald was the first, and Schultz said, Edvald, go now. And then, so Edvald went, he did an incredible job. Then I thought, I can't, Mick took over, then... We were going so hard up this climb. I remember just sitting on 500-odd watts the whole way up. And Sean going, Schleck dropped. Valverde dropped. Quintana dropped. And it was just like, guy, one, Ticking two. them off. Yeah, and before you know it, there are eight of you left, you know. And it was just, because um, you don't look round. You know, I'm sat there on the back of my team just fo- concentrating, concentrating. And it was just, it was amazing. We kind of stamped the tour that day, didn't we? Yes, Probably won the that tour was that it. Day. I mean, yeah. and I remember I was so excited. I rode down the mountain on my bike and uh, I was like, we won the tour. Obviously, there's a hell of a long way to go, but, you know, we just smashed it, smashed everyone into submission that day. And in the, same, in the same way that we're talking about this year's tour, that you're so confident that Team Ineos is there to lo- theirs to lose now, you felt exactly the same way in 2012. Bearing in mind as well that, you know, Team Sky had not won a, they hadn't won the Tour de France at that no. stage. No, I mean, obviously, as I said, we had a fantastic 2012 leading up to it. And referring to Team Ineos, I just cannot see how they're going to lose it. All all the other things from that year as well, though, because we had a British world champion in the team as well. And we were doing lead-outs for British world champions. For Cav, we're talking about, yeah. Yeah, and obviously the last stage in Paris, Sean, I'll never forget Sean saying, wind it up, you know, because you did you tell to get me to 1K? Mick, I said, your, your only job today is to get Bradley to the 1K banner on the front. Whenever, yeah. Whenever I was doing the lead out for Cav, I, when I was telling him I was going to go, I'd always tap me right bum cheek, so he knew that. Right, buckle up. It's go time. Yeah, yeah. Point seat belts. That was yeah. a, that was an unbelievable final to that tour. You know, you couldn't write a script better. Sean, do you miss all of this stuff? Because you, you've you've obviously you've stepped away. I've stepped away. Um, obviously, nothing lasts forever. You know, I kind of miss it. Obviously, I'm still watching the cycling, following the cycling. I still coach. I've still talked to a lot of, you know, ex-riders and, I, you know, there have been a couple of periods where I've been close to coming back into the, the World Tour fold. But, you know, I'm, my health has not been the greatest. Um, I'm getting older. I feel you need to be full of energy. You're like a what and really focused. And it's really hard when you hit the top, you know, to, to maintain that momentum. And obviously life changes and things change along the way. So, you know, at a certain point, you do change direction. Although, you know, never say never. If some team came up to me more and said, do you, do you want to work for us next year? I'd probably say yes. Sean you know? is available. Yeah, yeah, but there's another interesting dynamic to this in that Sean inspired me. Jess up to that point, I mean, you correct me if I'm You weren't cycling in 2012, were you? No. Was you, he was you a couch potato, weren't you? A lot yeah. heavier and was inspired by 2012. I was, so. Definitely. It might sound quite outlandish to say that I wasn't maybe so inspired by Sean because he's my father, but 2012 kind of made me realise who he was and I was mature and I was I kind of grown up a bit and I kind of realised what was going on especially in that year and seeing him on TV with the year in yellow and yeah. the documentaries following Team Sky and seeing him there and seeing him things saying things like have you got permission from Brad to do that you know he's just on TV and I was like wait a minute it takes seeing it Rather than being told about it, Definitely. sometimes it but takes you weren't seeing active it from at that you, point. You were a lot heavier as well, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, I was ninety-four kilos. Yeah, Oof. and inspired and by it and took up cyclists. Never looked yeah. back. And Amazing, like you passed down three 0 Yeah, yeah. One more, one last one on that 2012 tour, then, because 
and is there any truth to the you've said it before Sean maybe that, that you told Brad not to go home there was a point where you were ready to go home in yeah, I, I, I don't know that... I packed my bags and that, but I was yeah. like you know look, if we can't go on like this for two weeks you know yeah I thought we were all on the same page you know like if it's going to carry on I said, I'll just I'll just go home because I took so much stick the year before for failing and starting to get it right I'm leading by the tour by two minutes so then you know someone was sort of shooting bullets in a different direction to what we were trying and I was just like it was just trying to understand the situation like all these guys you know Richie Mick they'd all sacrificed their chances for us to win the tour I was leading by two minutes and it was just because it wasn't part of the plan I was kind of going what's going on I was trying to understand the situation I think more than anything yeah there's definitely truth in it you know and and Bradley was so focused it's a fine line between you know when you're that focused that motivated you know you can tip either way easily some easier more easy than others and yeah like Bradley said for me Froome went back on his word and for me he would is not a guy I like for that reason end of story and this this is what Jesse was was just um, referring to there with uh, Froome going off the front and Brad you, you saying as DS in the Team Sky car Froome you better have Brad's permission for that yes because it obviously wasn't part of the plan so I'm thinking okay maybe they had a chat between themselves you know and and Brad said this is okay but you know that's why obviously I questioned him but there was no conversation it was not part of the plan well, I think I spoke to him later and I think what he was in his head was he was trying to get more time on Nibbly because mm. he was. But that wasn't our priority. No, but in doing that, took his eye off the board. We had a plan, and then suddenly he got got led astray. And, you know, okay, you could could take either way. He was either naive, and he didn't really mean it, or this, that, and the other. But when I think of what he's done since, I think, you know, he's not that naive. And, yeah, he did but go back his word. Me, Bradley, and Dave B were in the the room, in the back of the bus. We came to an agreement, and he renegade on that agreement. End of story. All right. Um, I mean... So, Brad, we've talked about as you know, you as a, a sort of a young, romantic, almost idealistic teenager. Sean mm. was your man. You've got the choice there when you, yeah. you know, you're looking for British British idols, and you've got Bourbon O'Brien, uh, you've got Robert Miller now, yeah. now Philippa York, um, and Sean was your man. Jesse, who do you look to now as as your sort of as your role model in terms of cycling? Well, like Brad said, I was inspired by 2012. Yeah, and um, yeah, Brad was my man back then. And then understanding more, it was my own dad. Yeah. My inspiration, and still to this day, remains very big inspiration for me, just in life in general, yeah. on how to be. And um, like I say, like, the reason why everyone vouches for Sean and thinks he's such a good guy is because he's loyal to his word. And that's why you, people... you said before about it, he's mm. famously a man of... In... You've talked about Sean as being a, a famously a man of integrity. Yeah. And, well, uh... the, the thing is that this is why he helped my career, because although I was a fan of him as a kid when we actually started working together that's where he helped me because he wasn't a yes man and he would tell you how it is as upsetting as it was at the time or but then you say okay well i'm going to take this man's word and there was times where you know sean would just tell me you know i don't know what you're doing like tour romandy and there was a few things where i just there was a period i went through where i was just flapping i just i didn't i didn't get it together couldn't handle the pressure of things this that, and the other and i was just a bit of a letdown really i wasn't leading the team but what happened was I got someone like Sean on my back in a constructive way, in a straightforward way, rather than maybe some of the other team management at the time um, that would just make you're making me look uh, you're, well, you're making me look stupid. So can you get to? Whereas it's like okay, well, how can you help me? And particularly Sean and Shane Sutton, Tim Kerrison, and I learned from it. And that's all you can do. Some people want to be told how great they are constantly. They can't accept criticism. Mm. And that's where the help comes in. They're there to help you. They're not there to blow smoke up your ass. And I think that's what Sean's done through his whole career. And some people will say, well, I don't like Sean. I don't, because he's straight to it. He just says it out. He says, I don't care what, how many races you've won. 
Do you want me to tell you, or do you want me to tell you how great you are, or do you want me to tell you f***ed up today, you know? Jesse, the reason I threw that one to you is I thought you might mention Peter Sagan. Wow, what can I say? I think he's, he's <laughs> saved the sport in many ways. It feel, I feel like just the charisma he brings to the sport, he's yeah. a character, he's a showman, and I'm sure he's inspired many, many riders for the future generation. Sean, you've you've been his DS at Tinkoff. How, how did you get on with, with well, Peter? Peter is is genuinely uh, obviously a fantastic talent, but a mm. super nice guy. And you know, obviously, I left Tinkoff and the team folded. I had a really bad accent. The year after, I went back to Belgium, and this is an example of Peter how how nice it is. I was uh, over there to watch the Tour of Flanders in I was staying in um, Kreuzbergen, and his team came down the road on a training ride and he suddenly saw me and he just pulled over from the team came over give me a hug the team were obviously riding off into the distance he was alone and, and had a quick chat and then the kid came along and he signed the autograph and, and then he had to chase back on I mean Peter is a 100% genuine world class yes he, I mean obviously as a, uh, an athlete as well very exciting he deals with a lot of pressure as do all grand champions well We've, we've talked about how it's not necessarily a, a traditional tour to this point, but the one thing you can almost always rely on is that he will be in the points jersey. And well, he's, yeah. he's, he's already in green. We fully expect him to keep that, yeah. don't we? He's part, he's part of the fabric of that race, isn't he? It's an institution that he takes green. A bit like when Kelly was doing it, you know, Zabel. It's almost become, you know, I can't see who's going to take it off him for the next five years, maybe, you know. All right, chaps, uh, we've got about an, enough time for an Ask Brad. Usually we'd have, uh, we'd have one phoned in, but I'm going to throw it to the floor Sean, Jesse, have you got a question you'd like to throw to Brad? Yeah, I was going to say, are you disappointed about not winning Roubaix? Because I remember you mm. very aggressive that one year and I was definitely standing in front of the team yeah. just willing you on. And... No, I mean, I, I would love to have won Paris-Roubaix, but that's just the romantic, you know. You, yeah. I mean, I was just, I was, I'm fortunate to have done what I did do and I was happy to come in in the top 10 with all my peers, you know, like all my heroes really from my generation. Boonham was there, Cancellara... Um, Sagan was there, you know, G was there to come into the velodrome. It was always a dream of mine, you know. And I've, I'd watched Sean do it in '94 when Schmiel won in Baldato and Ballerini came in for second and third. And then you came in with Capio and those guys to sprint. It's, it's, it's like no other race coming into that velodrome. I mean, it really is. And I still remember passing Boonen on the Carrefour de Labra as he blew up. And I've got a great picture by Leon Van Bon, who was a professional, um, of, of Boonen in the wheel next to the cafe. Um, and I, that's just, you know, something I always... And I, but I only went serious the last few years. But Roubaix's the type of race I always thought it was, that you needed four or five editions to actually finish the thing. But now cycling's changed something. We talk about 21-year-olds maybe winning the Tour. So, you know, but in those days, you had to learn your trade, really. Mm. I mean, it took you five or six to finish Roubaix, didn't it? Yeah. You said the other day about that 7-Eleven picture when you had the double flat. You said you were absolutely flying that day, didn't you? In 89, yes, I was coming to the Allenberg Forest. I was away and I was, yeah, I had a double flat and my head just went. And I said, sod it, and threw in the towel. I could have won that day. You know, I, I was absolutely floating. But, um, yeah, ifs and buts, hindsight is always, um, you know, and you, you kind of go through your career just doing what you want to do. Yeah. And and looking back, obviously things a lot of things have changed, which influenced maybe how you think you should have done things and this, that, and other. But ultimately, it is what it is. I had a great time, and that was what it's all about, you know. And you're still riding your bike? I'm still riding my bike. Um, slow, slow. Obviously, I've had a lot of heart issues over the previous years, but um, I'm not. Eight hour rides. I'm not. I'm still not throwing in the <laughs> towel. I mean, I did a ten ten hour ride. Tell me the other day how he wants to ride. Um... 
do you want a heart problem? Do 50 days racing on the trot. <laughs> I want to ride the Southland District New Year's Day 2010, sorry, in, when at 50 years after I read it first. But the sport has changed as well. Sean always told me this story about, is it 1984 Tour de France? They did a stage 350k. 330. From Nantes to Bordeaux. And it took them how long? 10, Ten hours. 10 hours, and then they had a transfer... Yeah, and a double stage the next day or something. It was the was first mountains with stage at Robert one into yeah. Luchon, and and, and I was eighty five kilo. You know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how I did it. Um, and so press ups to finish. You just did it. You just did it. Three hundred thirty k. You just did it. Ten hour stage. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. just did it. We just got on with it. You know, um, yeah. so much has changed, and it's exponentially everything's you know changing ever faster. So it's really hard to kind of relate, but you know. Back in the day, you just did what you did, and you know you either made it. It was a lot of the jungle, really, you know. And it's not for no no reason that a lot of guys came home or packed up. You know, mm. it was tough, and I was lucky to have the constitution and the strength of mind to to be able to survive. And obviously, I had the career that I had. Oh, and it's a pleasure to have had you with us, Sean. Looking so Thank fit you. and so well. That's it for this episode of the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport. Thanks to our sponsor, Lacquer bicycle insurance powered by the community until next time you can stay up to date with brad uh on social media at brad sir we go i think it is yeah. sir we go on twitter and instagram plus you can follow eurosport on twitter and instagram at eurosport underscore uk should we plus, give these to a plug sean yates coaching is that right sean sean yates coaching.com yes, yeah yes, new clients are welcome welcome and jess jess what's yours come on jesse yates underscore he's a blogger jesse Sometimes. are you i believe you're jesse yates 1996 on, on Twitter, Twitter. On Twitter yeah, yeah, Instagram. If you want to follow you there. Yeah, Twitter, yeah. All right. Um, between now and next Monday, you can catch every minute of every stage of the Tour de France live on Eurosport and Eurosport Player. Don't watch um, ITV. Do not do that. <laughs> um, that will include... Uh, so, on Eurosport, that will include Brad from next Friday yes. in the studio. Brad, you're back you, out there. Yeah, you don't have to listen to Contador anymore. I'll be back. I'll you'll, be, be, you'll be back on the bike I'll for the be Tourmalade. Back. I'll be on like that You know, supply teacher used to get. We go, I love this guy. We can really have a laugh with him. <laughs> um, so, I, this is right, isn't it? The next day you're scheduled to be on well, I imagine your bike it's Saturday. is stage 14, yeah. which finishes on the Tourmalade. So, we're going to look forward to that. Brad, enjoy that. Thank you. Um, finally, from me, Graham Wilgos, it's goodbye. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe. Subscribe, share your thoughts and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Sean, Jesse, thanks again. Cheers. Thank Brad, you very much. We'll see you next Cheers. week. See you next week. Loved it. Cheers. Bang tidy. The Bradley Wiggins Show is a Muddy Knees Media production for Eurosport. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.